Hello, bonjour, and welcome to the Don't Waste Wallet podcast. I'm your host, Antoine Balter, and in today's episode, I am thrilled to welcome Alan Condron as my guest. Alan is a scientific researcher and a climate modeler at the Woods Hole Oceanographic Institution, the world's leading independent non-profit organization dedicated to ocean research, exploration, and education. Actually, my discussion with Alan is the closing part of a triptych dedicated to iceberg harvesting and towing to provide water to arid places of this world. After my opening investigation that you can find in the bonus episodes of this podcast and on YouTube, and my deep dive on the Emirates project with Abdullah Al-Shehi, we'll go this week in the depth of the science behind all of that while using the Cape Town Iceberg Project, to which Alan contributes, as an illustration. Alan will explain how icebergs drift in oceans can be modeled, what we can learn from it, how an iceberg would behave along a towing route from Antarctica to South Africa, and how large the iceberg shall be upon departure and arrival to cover 20% of Cape Town's water needs. But he also raises the still open questions, discusses ecological impact, bigger picture, day zero, proof of concept, financial equation, and you'll even hear about the Titanic and the Queen Mary too. So I let you discover my conversation with Alan right after this gentle reminder. Please share that episode with a couple of colleagues or friends. Really do it and I'll meet you on the other side. You're listening to Don't Waste Water, the podcast that helps water professionals to improve their wastewater treatment, optimize their operation costs, and keep up with the latest market trends. This podcast is brought to you by GF Piping Systems. As a leading supplier of piping systems made of plastics and metal, GF Piping Systems is the global expert for the safe and reliable transportation of water, chemicals, and gas. For more information, visit gfps.com. Hi, Alan. Welcome to the show. It's a pleasure to be here. Thanks for having me. I have to say, it's a very interesting and intriguing topic we will be covering today. But before jumping into that part, I'd like to open with our good old traditions. And that's the postcard. And you are going to send us probably a salty postcard compared to uh, all the postcards we had so far. So what can you tell me about the place you're at right now? I can tell you it's a beautiful day here. We're on Cape Cod in Massachusetts. I'm actually at my house right now, mainly because of some COVID restrictions, getting my kids back to school and juggling schedules. Yeah, that's about it, really. We're about a mile from the beach. It's, it's beautiful. So there's a reason why you're a mile from the beach. It's that that has to do with your job. I mean, many people have the beach as something they do in the holiday. For you, it's every day. So maybe you get bored by the beach. I hope not. But <laughs> can you tell us uh, in just a simple words what you're doing today? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So we can tell you a bit about myself too. Yeah. I'm a climate modeler by profession, essentially using you know, numerical models to simulate the climate system to understand climate change, past climate change. So how things, um, you know, glacial time scales and also future climate as well. So, you know, what's going to happen if we keep putting you know, more CO2 into the environment? What could be the sort of feedbacks you know, from doing that, right? All the consequences from doing that. So my work kind of spans yeah, a range of timescales. As you say, yeah, being close to the beach, you know, it's inspiring as well because you know, my work is obviously based, you know, looking at the ocean, the ocean circulation and, and how that changes. So, you know, the drive to work, you can get some inspiration from driving along the beach and looking out to sea and thinking, yeah, I can see, I can model that using, using my computer, you know. You're working right now at the Woods Hole Oceanic Institute, which is, according to what I read on the website, at least the biggest institute of that kind worldwide. Can you tell us a couple of words about WHOI? Yeah, so WHOI, we, we, say, we, call it, we pronounce it, we say HUI um, for short. Yeah, so I may end up saying HUI quite a lot in this talk. Yeah, no, as you say, yeah, it's an oceanographic research institute. It is it's large, even on Cape Cod. I think it's the it's, I think it's the second biggest employer on Cape Cod. The, apparently the hospital is bigger. But yeah, I know it's sort of from a scientific standpoint, though, it sort of comes with a lot of prestige. So it's quite, you know, quite, we're quite fortunate to work here, actually. And yeah, you know, we're doing a range of, not myself, but there's, I think there's over at least a thousand, you know, sort of science employees doing a range of things. And I do computer modeling, but there are people that also, you know, go out on research boats, you know, go to the Arctic and, you know, they're taking measurements of the water 
you know, you know, dropping in like gliders and robots you know, even now into the water, you're know, sending them down. You know, Woods Hole is also quite famous for um, finding the Titanic, which, you know, sank um, in 1912, I think. Uh, it was Bob Ballard, was, he was at Woods Hole for a while, and he was on the expedition that originally found the Titanic. So it's, it's kind of cool. It sounds like like the perfect transition to uh, our deep dive for today because we are going to be talking about icebergs quite a lot. And that all starts with um, a story I just saw popping up and some auditors of that podcast reached out to me and told me, hey, what do you think about iceberg as a source of drinking water? And the first time I heard that, it was like, come on, that must be like a welcome side effect to welcome being into brackets of climate change that we are now considering this kind of marketing moves because, you know, there's iceberg bottled water, which is incredibly expensive and all of that. So I was really, really negative about, about it, but still curious. And I started looking into it. And the more I was looking into it, the more it turned out I was totally wrong. This sounds incredibly legit and hence our discussion today. But before going into the, the core of the matter, I'd love to hear your own feedback. How did you first hear of that topic of towing icebergs for the sake of drinking water production yeah it's a <laughs> it's a great question it sort of came up sort of from it from two angles i guess one is when i started out so my research itself i look a lot at uh, the polar regions and ice ice sheets and i spent the sort of last uh, five to ten years writing this a model um it's almost like a computer game in a way to simulate icebergs and how they drift in the ocean and the sort of you know the goal of that uh, model was to think about you know, things like the Greenland ice sheet start to melting faster or Antarctica, you know, and you know, more icebergs are going into the ocean. How might that influence global climate? And then at the sort of same time, you know, having then built this iceberg model, the media, you know, if you, and this kind of gets back to your point that the media seem to sort of, you know, periodically put out these, um, these articles about people who want to tow icebergs. And it, and it sounds a bit sort of, science fiction in a way perhaps right as you sort of dig into the literature it's been around for quite a while so yeah, i'd say i came across it over the last sort of five years and having this iceberg model that i made it made me curious and we can talk about this a little bit more later about how i could actually use my model to sort of investigate this problem but yeah so the, the media kind of so occasionally puts out these articles and i think you know people read them and go wow it just sounds nuts right But then, you, you you know, you do a little literature search and you look back. And as you've just said, you know, you find this, at least since the 1970s, kind of a wealth of information. I think what would be exciting to talk about in a minute is how, you know, how that's developed over time or not developed, actually. I mean, there haven't been any iceberg toes really performed, despite lots of discussion about doing it. That is a fascinating aspect of that full topic. It's that I found the first record to be mid-19th century of iceberg towing or iceberg towing projects. Some people wanting to tow some icebergs to India to sell them, some others trying to bring them to places where they could be crushed for drinking water purposes. So really that is around for two centuries. And it's pretty easy to find the beginning of every project and you know, the full rational builds up. But then the reason why it never happens is something which is rarely documented. So Do you have a known explanation of why it never happened so far? Yeah, that's that's also a good question. I think one of the main reasons, or in the, actually there were several reasons. I mean, I think sort of logistics of pulling it off is quite challenging. So, yeah, right now people are, as you sort of mentioned, there have been sort of places where they've towed icebergs for short distances. And, you know, and there's sort of this boutique market at the moment of, iceberg towing or iceberg using icebergs so in canada and newfoundland there's a company that um is, is basically you know get cutting off pe little pieces of ice or getting small icebergs and they're using it to brew beer or um to make sort of what you know very pure what they call very pure water and this, this is a market for that it's like a boutique market there's the purest vodka worldwide as well which is called iceberg and which is from from canada so it's it's really a marketing topic to that extent absolutely yeah And, was, you know, it's funny because we, we were up there um, a couple of years ago. And, you know, if you, you look at the bottom of the water and it's, you know, it claims it's, it's 10,000 years old water that you're drinking because, it, you know, it was the idea that the snow falls on the ice and then takes that long to become the glacier and then the iceberg comes down the coast. 
said, you know, you're drinking this really old water. But to do it on a larger scale is is always been the challenge. I think we can, you know, we dial into this a little bit later too, but there's so many aspects of actually pulling off the whole thing. You know, there's the going out and getting the iceberg, um, you had sort of putting a line around it to, to move it in the first place and then pulling it back, you know, to where you want to go with it. And then there's, a, there's huge amounts of uncertainty about how much ice you're going to lose, you know, during the tow, how quickly these icebergs are going to melt. And that's partly where my work comes in as well. Yeah, what does this tow even look like? What do you put around the iceberg? Is it just simply a, a piece of wire, um, a rope, some type of very m- much more sophisticated insulating material that can help, you know, preserve the iceberg as, it, as it's towed? But, and I think part of the problem is what do you do with it when you get it to the destination? So, you know, you, you arrive at your destination where you want to extract the water. Um, you know, you've got some large vessels behind it, you have this huge iceberg. And then you have this issue, well, okay, now we've got this the iceberg. We have to get somehow get this water on shore without contaminating it. So you know, we don't want the salt water from the ocean to go into the iceberg. And how do we actually go about doing that sort of extraction of the water? Where do we put the iceberg? You know, you can tow it somewhere. There's an interesting problem, but perhaps not a lot of people think about it, is if you're going to bring a really, really big iceberg back to a place like Cape Town, which is having, you know, having water issues, or Perth in Australia, your iceberg is going to be quite thick. So as you start to approach you know, the, the harbour or whatever that you want to you know, extract the iceberg, it's, it's going to hit the bottom of the ocean, quite a, probably quite a long way out from where you, you want it. You know, it's not this idea you can just bring it right up onto the beach. An iceberg that's going to provide an amount of water that is usable is going to be, you know, 100, 200 metres thick, for example. So the problem is that as you bring it up to the coast, you're going to hit the bottom of the sea really quickly. So then your iceberg's stuck offshore. And so you have to come up with some sort of clever way then to get that water onshore. Regarding the arrival itself, just before we go into the depth of that, I like just for, for the muggles like me, which are not day in, day out, like you're working with that, if we can just recap the principle of the project. Because when we are talking of iceberg, we opened with, with the Titanic. It's not the kind of iceberg we're talking of. If I recall what was written in, in, in these reports in the 70s, which was really the decade where lots of people were looking at that, we are talking of an iceberg which is several tens of kilometers long. Is it still that size that you're, you're looking at? If yes, of course, you imagine that you're not dragging that into a harbor, I guess. Yeah, right. So we've, we've begun to look at this and the model we've sort of gone, gone along is the Cape Town idea. So there's been a guy, Nick Sloan, has, has been working on this. He's a marine salvage guy. And it's a project I became involved in. And, you know, Nick is famous for raising the Costa Concordia back in, uh, I think it's um, 2012. And, um, you know, he... This is and this gets back to your earlier question about how I became interested in this. There was an article in the BBC, I think, in um, 2018 that interviewed Nick, and he'd sort of decided that, being the marine salvage expert he is, that if he he might as well turn his attention to moving icebergs, and uh, you know, thinking as as a water, you know, way to relieve water stress. I thought, wow, this is you know, it's fascinating. I'd sort of known about this before, but. You know, I, obviously, growing up in England too, I sort of heard about you know the Costa Concordia, and it was, actually, yeah, I, I sort of reached out to Nick and said, "Hey, I've got this iceberg model. Can I help in some way with, the, with your project?" But getting back to that, I mean, I did write some numbers down. Is that, so when um, thinking about Cape Town as a sort of a case example, you know, Cape Town apparently uses five hundred million liters of water a day, which is phenomenal to think about, right? And so the iceberg that Nick has got in mind to tow to Cape Town is going to relieve about sort of one-fifth of that, so about 100 million litres of water a day. That's the sort of iceberg he's got in mind. And so, you know, chatting with Nick and, you know, a little while ago, you know, an iceberg that, to provide that amount of water, when you bring it to to Cape Town, it's going to have to be huge. It's going to be 600 metres, they've got some dimensions, so 600 metres long, 300 metres wide, and 200 metres deep. Okay, and that's on the... That's the sort of smaller, smallest size it could, it could be. So, you know, these are quite large icebergs on, on arrival. And what we've been doing is 
thinking about well how what does that iceberg need to be when you you catch it in the first place because it as you you go get it and you tow it somewhere it's going to melt right and so to think about uh, how much melt is lost during the tow and so uh, you know we've done some this is where the, the my model has come into this work to think about you know how much melt would be lost and so think about yeah what what's the size of the iceberg you initially need to target to bring it you know to cape town and what is your estimate at that melting rate because i've seen in the 70s there was some scientists from from the u.s army that were saying if you go to the equator you have just a tow everything else is going to be melted it's 100 melting rate and that was my best guess to understand why it stopped in the 70s and didn't went further And I've seen a French project led by, by Georges Mougin in 2003. And I think Georges Mougin is also working on the project in Cape Town. And they were working with Dassault System to do a, model, a modeling of all of that. And they were estimating the melt. So it's, it wasn't the same route, but on their route, which was between Newfoundland and Canaria, they had, I think, 38% melting rate. So what is your estimate? I mean, your route goes from Antarctica to Cape Town. How long would that last? And how much of the iceberg would melt on that way? That's a good question. So, you dig out some numbers for you. Let's see. A, a tow from Antarctica to Cape Town, depending on the speed that you're going to tow it, and the estimated speeds seem to vary between half a knot to one knot. So, that's like that's 0.25 meters a second to 0.5 meters a second. In my model, we go for the higher end, which is one. We can move in the iceberg at one knot, and that's based on some chats with Nick, who believes he can pull it fairly fast. But um, A tow from Antarctica to Cape Town is, in this terms of distance, is still about 2,500 kilometers. It's a long way. If you tow it at one knot, you can get there in about 60 days, so about two months. And if you tow it at half a knot, you know, it's, it's, it's double the time, almost almost four months. But there's, the Cape Town route is quite interesting and from a sort of oceanographic perspective. Because of the proximity of Antarctica to, to South Africa, For the first part of the tow, if you would go down and look, pick an iceberg that was you know, drifting around Antarctica, the first part of the tow is actually in fairly cold water for a long time. You can get quite close to South Africa before you hit sort of more uh, subtropical warm waters. And also, the nice thing about the South Africa tow is the direction of the ocean circulation at that, at that point too. So if you, you sort of essentially would want to go sort of bit upstream or to, to the west of South Africa and then down to Antarctica. And the ocean currents then will actually be in your favor. They'll help push the iceberg towards Cape Town. So you're sort of essentially using the, iceberg, the ocean currents to move, move the iceberg. And you can sort of uh, then slowly pull the iceberg out of this sort of cold Antarctic water into, you know, into the subtropics. Of course, things then kind of really go bad once you get into the, into the warm water at least in our, in our model, this is when, as you start to approach Cape Town, you're really losing ice mass. You know, ice, ice in warm water doesn't go <laughs> very well, as most people know. So to answer your question about sort of sizes, we did a couple of runs, you know, simulations in our climate model. The first one actually was to sort of take a step back from um, and just say, well, what's the smallest iceberg that can survive the tow in the first place? So if you were to get go to Antarctica and you grab a piece of ice and then pull it to Cape Town, you know, even if it was just a tiny ice cube upon arrival, what would be the initial size? This is quite interesting because the initial size actually turns out to be quite close to what uh, the size that um, Nick Sloan wants to have show up in Cape Town, an iceberg roughly 400 meters long and 200 meters thick. If you were to go and pick an iceberg that big from Antarctica and then you towed it to Cape Town, That was pretty much the minimum size, in our, at least in our model, that will make it there before it melts. You mentioned the various ways to tow an iceberg. And again, my only experience here is the literature I read. And there is the first way, which is um, like all companies do, so that icebergs don't collide with oil rigs, which is simply putting a cable and moving it a bit. Then you have this Dubai project, which is, I don't know if it's a competition or not to the Cape Town project, which is the, on, the other one alive currently in the world, where the owner of that project claims to have a patented way to drag and to catch the iceberg. And then you had many projects in the 70s who were all around 
wrapping the iceberg into plastic sheets or sometimes on the full height of the of the iceberg, sometimes a bit more realistic on a certain part, which is the part which is really going in contact with the waves. Did you also have a look at the various possibilities and according to you, what is the best compromise between practicity, cost? Yeah, so the answer to your question, yeah, it's, it's, it's that's sort of the second part of our, our project in a way. We haven't actually looked at the effects of sort of wrapping the iceberg in, in a material. The um, Yeah, as you, as you say, there are some quite interesting ideas put forward to you know, what this material might look like, right? Um, whether people discuss something called like a geotextile skirt, which would be basically just be like a belt that insulates the iceberg around the sort of, yeah, the sort of uh, the wave line. So icebergs are really susceptible in terms of melt from waves crashing against the side of them. It's actually one of the biggest ways that icebergs deteriorate. So if you can stop that uh, melt at the surface, then that's going to sort of preserve your iceberg for longer. Yeah, the other ways, as you described there, is that yeah, to wrap it in, the, you know, there's been ideas to wrap the entire iceberg in some type of material. I mean, this is quite interesting, though. So if you worked out the surface area of one of these icebergs, um, you would need phenomenal amounts of material, right? If you look at an iceberg that's it's, it's a half a kilometer long by, say, you know, a third of a kilometer wide, and it's 200 meters thick, right? Time if you work out the surface area of that, and then you imagine what that might look like as a material sort of wrapped up on a spool or something. It's going to be kilometers and kilometers long of material. You know, is it is it feasible to be able to wrap an iceberg in something like that? Right? It's like wrapping someone in bandages all the way from head to toe. It's you know, it's a lot, right? What we've done in the model so far is we've just been looking at what we call unprotected icebergs. So they're not insulated in any way. And that's sort of where our basic melt calculations have come from. But, you know, and to get back to that too, so if we wanted to get an iceberg to Cape Town that could provide a significant amount of water, say it's one third or one fifth of the, of the drinking water, the estimates still come out fairly good. You need an iceberg about a kilometer long in our model by 600 meters wide and 300 meters thick. It might sound really big, but in terms of Antarctic icebergs, it's actually not anything unusual. You wouldn't have any real difficulty in Antarctica finding an iceberg like that. You know, there are ones that are much, much bigger. So, you know, to, yeah, you could to locate one of those and then pull it back. So that survives the tow and then... When in our model, then when that gets to South Africa, it provides the required amount of drinking water, which is about 100 milliliters a day. There's a sort of caveat with that, though, because if you just leave your iceberg, so you bring it back and it's brilliant, it's the right size, right? It's got all the water you need. But if you leave it offshore, you don't do anything with it because it's surrounded by essentially subtropical waters, which are you know, 25, 20, 25 degrees C air temperatures, a similar temperature. In our model, if we leave it offshore for two months, it's gone. It's completely melted. I mean, you've got this massive iceberg, and it's great, and it, but it's got, it's got all the water that you need to help alleviate drought in South Africa, or in, in Cape Town especially. But if you, don't, if you can't harvest that water instantly, or if you can't find a clever way to stop the iceberg melting, like if you just left it offshore and you were standing on the beach every day looking at it from Cape Town, you know, our model would be gone after two months. You know, that opens up another, you know, another issue with the, with the towing, right? What do you do with the iceberg when it, you get it to its destination? You have to come up with some sort of clever way to very quick, even very quickly harvest the water or to stop it melting as well. That's a huge challenge. So in the Cape Town project, you have Nick Sloan, which is, I guess, dealing with the, the actual towing that's his expertise, you are looking at the model of what you need to have as a size, then what you need to drag. Who's looking at the part where the iceberg is actually next to Cape Town and you need to crush it in order to turn it into drinking water? That's a great question too. Um, that's actually part of the aspect I'm not actually all that too familiar with. I know that it, um, I think on Nick's team, or some of the presentations I've seen by Nick, he's discussed ways, you know, described ways that you would extract this water. This idea of sort of 
open what's what would appear to be like an open cast mine where you have an iceberg and you can then drill down through inside it but of course that doesn't avoid the problem of if you if you have it offshore it still doesn't get around the problem that it's going to be sitting in very very warm water right um there's also been i think there's been just ideas about bringing these things into like dry docks you know where you could somehow bring it close to the shore or yeah whether you sort of could break it up into smaller pieces I think that, you know, getting back to your earlier points about what are some of the reasons this perhaps this hasn't been pulled off as, as a viable way for, for water is, is yeah, there's, is the harvesting aspect of the iceberg. I just wanted you to compare quickly, just to put into comparison, if I take the iceberg, the size you, you, you're mentioning, so you said 200 meters deep. 600 meters long, 300 meters wide, and about 200 meters thick, yeah. So these 200 meters thick, I mean, a part is going to be outside the water, but we know the metaphor of the iceberg, so a lot of it is going to be underwater. But if we compare it to a ship like, I don't know, the, the Queen Mary, uh, or there's probably a, a bigger one now, how bigger is the iceberg, just to get a comparison? Yeah, that's a good point. Um, well, yeah, the, so the classic analogy about that you only see the tip of the iceberg, right? I mean, so a, ten, a tenth of the, roughly about a tenth, or an eighth to a tenth of the iceberg is below the water, right? So if you've got a 200 meter iceberg you're going to be looking about 20 meters above water it's quite funny because it will look quite small actually from oh it won't look like it's that thick if you were standing on the shore looking at it because you know 180 meters of it would be be under the water i'm not entirely sure how long the queen mary is <laughs> was just it in. it's, it's about 70 meters deep okay but i think you don't have the same ratio of 10 to 90 person between what's submerged and what's not submerged i guess you cannot drag i mean i guess it must be difficult to drag your iceberg up to the shore as you were mentioning before and even if it's not the shore even if it's a harbor which is meant for those big ships it's probably still not meant for for an iceberg or maybe you don't want to block your full harbor because you're, you're harvesting an iceberg for the next two months so arrival is going to be tricky <laughs> yeah absolutely yeah if you if you know if you go on um Google Earth or something, um, you can look at the sort of water depths, you know, around Cape Town, for example. And, you know, as, as you get towards Cape Town, that area around South Africa, yeah, the, as you come up onto the continental shelf quite quickly, you know, the water gets shallow and then you have a, quite a long distance before you get to land that's, you know, is shallower than the thickness of the iceberg. That's the problem. But still, if I put all of that a bit in context, Cape Town was facing this, this day zero, in 2017, 2018, some rains saved the day, but I mean, climate change is not going to disappear. So chances are that this day zero is going to come again. And we estimate, I mean, there are several studies, by 2030, the world is going to miss about 40% of the, of the needed water resources just to cover our needs. For sure, you can still find a compensation somewhere. We've been discussing on that microphone how you can reuse water, how there's lots of options but still it's quite intriguing that in that context you have so much renewable water in those icebergs and no one ever said okay let's let's try it maybe we we end up with just a tool but still in terms of magnitude of cost it doesn't sound to be really from another word i mean the Dubai project was was mentioning about 100 million to do the tour. If I look back in the 70s the projects were all between this 30 and 100 million landmark do you have an estimate, even really ballpark estimate for the project in, in, uh, in Cape Town? Not off the top of my head. I know from some earlier discussion with Nick Sloan, he has, yeah, he's done some uh, sort of cost-benefit ana analysis, I believe. But not really. Um, there's lots of things to factor in, I think. You know, it's the, yeah, the cost of the, the vessels that you're going to be using, having the crew. You know, it's, it, as we've sort of discussed earlier, it's not a, it's not a short tow. It's going to take, you know, a couple of months to move this thing. Um, you know, it's the cost of the fuel, you know, for the vessels themselves. And this actually, this is sort of sparing my mind onto another topic, which we perhaps can touch on in a minute, is the sort of environmental impact of actually performing the tow as well, right? So, you know, if you're going to be burning a lot of diesel to pull these icebergs, you know, in your, in your towing vessels, is there a, you know, is there a carbon footprint? Or, I mean, what's the carbon footprint associated with performing the tows? And if it's something that's going to be, perform routinely you know that needs to be discussed right i guess it's a matter of what's the benchmark because if you're 
not getting your water from an iceberg, you're probably getting your water from a desalination plant. And a desalination plant, they've made lots of increasing in performance and it's much better today than it was maybe 20 or 30 years ago. But still, there is a base principle, which is uh, you're taking out salt from the water, which means you're returning that salt somewhere to the ocean, which is quite bad in terms of the ecosystems of the ocean. And of course, it needs a lot of energy to take that salt and the brines out of out of the water I mean, to separate water and salt. I'm really hitting open doors, but we are comparing an iceberg to, to a desalination plant, not to a river, I guess. That wouldn't make sense compared to surface water because I saw that was also one of the discussions around in Cape Town. So the ecological impact, I see it double-sided. On the way, of course, it's not the natural place for an iceberg. So probably there must be a, an impact of something cold in, in hot water. But on the other side of, of that same story, if you're desalinating at the exact same place where your iceberg is melting, well, all of a sudden you're adding fresh water in a place where usually you're only returning brines and heavily salted water. So maybe you're striking a balance. It's really muggles <laughs> inputs here. But on the ecological point of view, did you or someone of the of the team have a look at what would involve to actually tow an iceberg on, on that route and to have it melting next to Cape Town? Yeah, so we're beginning to sort of open up discussions at Woods Hole with our sort of biology department to look into this and you sort of hit the nail on the head completely there right it's it, it's sort of almost the opposite of desalination right with the iceberg you know you're moving up you know this cold sort of frozen thing into into a warm environment and then as it melts it's releasing cold fresh water so yeah there's you know what's then the consequence of of that iceberg you know releasing that water into the environment and you know sort of second well to move you know to go on from that is the fact that the icebergs you know, as you bring them on shore and they ground on the floor, right? So there's also going to be this this, this cold water is going to be released on the seafloor too. So you know, it might be creatures that live that live down there. The preliminary studies I'm looking at in the model where you're actually just towing the iceberg through the water, the sort of signature it leaves behind it in its in its wake and its path is actually quite minimal because it's such a small. It's so small in terms of the large scale ocean, right? I mean, it might look big when you're looking at it, you know, half a kilometer long iceberg, but on the grand scale of the global ocean, it's sort of like, you know, a drop in the water almost. And in the model, as we move this thing from you know, Antarctica to Cape Town, we can look at how it, the release of this cold, fresh water is changing the ocean properties. And in terms of the salinity or the temperature, it's very, very, very slight, very, very small, in fact. It's not until yeah you get the iceberg to its destination though that then you're potentially running into trouble right because then it's stationary it's in one place and it's constantly just releasing cold fresh water into the environment and so yeah no that's what we're now discussing with the sort of biology department here at Woods Hole is you know, if you were to look at what sort of species of fish and you know marine creatures live in that environment you know can they tolerate that. And do they even care? I mean, maybe they'll just move out of the way a little bit and they won't really be impacted by it. Or is it going to be significantly worse than that, that it has a much more detrimental impact? And you can imagine perhaps that just doing it once wouldn't really have a huge impact. But if this was eventually to become something that's a bit more commercially viable, that perhaps the repeat process over time you know, could sort of have a larger knock-on effect, right? And I think, yeah, so this gets back to the, 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 the harvesting of the, of the ice. And I think there needs to be a sort of clever way, perhaps, to, when you get the iceberg to its destination, to stop it losing all that f fresh, cold, fresh water into the ocean somehow. Because as the model shows as well, if you just leave it there, it's going to melt extremely quickly. It's going to melt so quick that you're not going to be able to extract enough water to you know, to solve your water crisis. So if I get you right, I mean, we've seen that you still need to capture your iceberg, you still need to tow it, you still need to bring it, it has to have the right side, not to melt on the way. But all of that seems to be more or less in control, according to your modeling. The bottleneck today is what do you do upon arrival? I mean, all, all the rest, I have the feeling, listening to you, that it can be sorted out. But once you bring it, if you're not able to do something fast enough, then you start having maybe ecological programs, maybe your money invested is melting away, and all of that then is for nothing. But if you look at 
the first desalination plants, if you look at the first time every kind of technology has been put in place worldwide, it's never perfect the first time. So I'm, I'm wondering what we need for someone just to say, okay, it's not perfect. It's not going to be perfect. Probably our iceberg is going to melt there and we're going to take maybe two bottles of water and it was probably not worth it, but we did it. No, I think absolutely right. So, and that's my real interest in this project too. You know, it's easy to focus on the negative things, right? All the things that could go wrong, um, you know, with the capturing, the towing, the, the harvest, you know, the extraction at the end, right? I think at the end of the day, yeah, just performing a tow to see if it's actually possible is, is really important, you know, to go and do it. And then, you know, if you say, you know, you get this iceberg, and you get it to Cape Town, and it's just a, it's just a trial experiment, right? As you've sort of said, it's not you're not aiming to solve the water crisis of one iceberg, but perhaps you know you get it to Cape Town, and you know, should sort of back up and say, you know, a climate model or an iceberg model is just a model, right? It's based on some equations about how we think ice melts in the ocean, and it's probably not perfect in any way. You know, perhaps as you, if you perform an actual tow. Maybe we'll find that it doesn't melt as fast as the model predicted, for example. You know, maybe it survives it survives a lot better. You end up with something that's much bigger. Maybe we found we could pull it faster than we already thought. You know, this idea that you can pull it at half a knot to a knot, if you sort of poke around the literature, it's, it's, it's not really based on too much uh, theory. There were some ideas that if you pull the, pull the big iceberg really fast, they would sort of start to oscillate almost like in a wave kind of pattern. And then that would cause them to, to break apart. Maybe it's possible we can pull them much faster than we think too. So, you know, you can show up in Cape Town with an iceberg that's much, much bigger than the model ever or the theory behind it ever predicted. And I think then if you said, yeah, this is great, you know, and you could work out how much water is left in your iceberg when you get it to where you want it to, and say, wow, this is really like a really sort of financially viable amount of water. And it's a, it's a volume of water that could help, you know, alleviate some sort of drinking water crisis. And I think then is, is to say, right, well, wow, yeah, what do we need to do then to get this water on shore? And perhaps then it's to sort of sit down and think, right, yeah, what would the infrastructure need to be, right? Some sort of perhaps dock-like facility that sort of has a sort of deep water channel perhaps that you could bring bring the iceberg in on and then once it's in there maybe you could sort of shut a door behind it you know if you can get rid of all the salt salty seawater around the iceberg that's going to make life a lot easier with your extraction because what you don't want is salt water getting in with your iceberg water the iceberg is one of the sort of beauties about you know harvesting icebergs is the water is extremely fresh and so you don't really need to treat it to drink it i mean you can actually just drink it and we've done this in you know with the students in in newfoundland where you know you can get a little iceberg and you can put it in a cup and it's it tastes amazing it's it's pure and it's fresh and so yeah to find it's come up with a way to be able to extract that water without the salt water getting into it i don't believe you can just leave it offshore and because it will just disappear but yes, if, if you can do a tow and you can show that it works, I think that that itself would open up a huge um, window of opportunity to sort of move this, this work forward, move it out of the sort of realms of science fiction fantasy, move it to something that really could work. Did you have any contact with the Emirati project led by Abdullah Al-Shehi? I met him, uh, actually met him at MIT a couple of years ago. He was visiting and he was yeah talking about He'd been raising and trying to raise a lot of money to pull off his project. And he was sort of, we, we sat down and I was showing him some, my, my model actually and what it could do. Yeah, I know there's been a lot of interest in the United Arab, Arab Emirates for quite a long time now, right? About this idea of using icebergs. There was this conference in 1977, which was funded by the Arab Emirates. I read that was the moment in time where they had the most expensive piece of ice because for the sake of the conference, they brought to the Iowa. A university, a piece of, of ice that was captured in, I think it was Newfoundland or Alaska or some, somewhere around that. And it came by, by plane and helicopter. So of course, it's an expensive piece of ice that you put in your cocktail. But there was all this interest in the 70s. And I, as much as I understand that project, it's really the, the follow-up of that story. And if I got it right, 
to them as well, the first stage of the tour would be to tow it not to Dubai, but probably to South Africa or Australia, just to say, look, the tour is feasible. So I was wondering if you're competitors to that extent, or if it's really, if someone ever does it, it's opening the door to everyone else. Yeah, that's, that's a good point. I mean, in terms of actually getting, you know, fresh water into sort of the, um, you know, large scale sort of a drinking water system, right? You don't need to tow it right to the, the final destination. You know, almost perhaps you can get the closest piece of land that you can get it to, right? Is one way to think about that. Yeah, we looked at, you know, in the model, we did some simulations of towing an iceberg to um, like Dubai. And it's, it, well, the tow for it takes over a year. And you have to transit across across the equator. So the iceberg is an exceptionally warm water for, for a long, long time. Yeah, no, I, I think uh, you're absolutely right, though, in terms of once this sort of done in one place, you know, whether it could be pulled off. Like towing an iceberg to Perth has also been, you know, proposed. I think uh, and that's very similar in a way to towing one to uh, to Cape Town. They both have the, the oceanography in those regions are both very similar in terms of you're close to Antarctica and also the ocean currents sort of benefit you that it will push you know the iceberg towards your your final destination and both those toes the cape town and the south african toe sorry the cape town and the uh, australia toe are pretty much the same distance maybe to me a, a last question in, the, in this deep dive it's around the, the financing i know you said that you don't necessarily have all the numbers for the actual project but when i was reading the report from rand from 1973 they were making an estimate and was saying that the actual towing would be costing eight dollars per 1000 cubic meter then taking that water onshore would would cost another eight dollars and then distributing it in the various system i mean if you take everything together it would cost around 30 dollars per thousand cubic meter which sounds incredibly cheap i would bet that is really 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 too cheap but even if you take those numbers and you multiply them by 10 or by 100 you're still at the magnitude of what destination costs and uh, if now you compare it to projects like atmospheric water generation and in the unconventional way so not not like uh, you're not on the grid you're really using solar power to generate your electricity and then from that solar power you are also turning this atmospheric water into actual water that you can drink and there are companies out there which have brilliant systems doing that but that is considered today to be the most expensive water on earth to be produced and those projects are backed by bill gates by jack ma by jeff bezos with their investment funds which are reinvesting into that i'm just wondering i mean those projects get the financing and probably through the fact that they get installed in the middle of nowhere in the middle of the bush in australia they get better and better and better and at some point they're going to become maybe economic in places which have no access to any other sources of water and on the other end of the scope of that who that sounds like the 70s like something which is just around and I'm wondering, d does someone finance it or is financing the missing piece? It's a great question, yeah. Um, yeah, why has this idea been around for so long, right, without um, somebody sort of backing it? And, you know, someone hearing this, your podcast here will um, would like to think about, you know, actually funding it. I mean, I don't think it's, it's got, I think we've got to the stage now where it's not, it's quite, you know, iceberg towing is not sort of as fantasy or science fiction as as perhaps it sounded, you know, all those years ago, I think the numbers run cheaper than uh, desalination sometimes. And you can put a price on an iceberg. You can work out if you were to convert the iceberg purely into, you know, water and how much the equivalent would be to do desalination. The icebergs are, have a million-dollar kind of price tag on them when they, when they show up in a right, on arrival. No, yeah, we're looking for someone to back it. I mean, even if it's just to perform just one or two toes with large icebergs, whether it's from Antarctica to Cape Town and just to see, hey, wow, this thing, you know, this survived. Or whether it's to do something a bit closer to home where we are at Woods Hole. I mean, Greenlanders are closest place to get icebergs. But is financing on the critical path today? Are the projects financed or are they missing the financing? I do believe he's raised private funding. My discussions with him probably about a year ago now was that uh, one of the reasons he hadn't pursued anything so far was because of COVID-19 uh, was, was getting in the way. Um, I did hear kind of on the grapevine that the, um, the United Arab Emirates project was suffering from a lack of 
uh, funding actually at the end of the day. Yeah, the, it, that, I think it is that is one of the biggest issues. But I think um, if people are you know thinking about funding this, I think they need to sort of take a step back, and it doesn't have to be the whole package to, to fund to begin with. I think it should just be to do you know exploratory toes with icebergs, just to pull them, you know, pull an iceberg into some warm water and see how quickly it melts. I mean, we can model it, but at the end of the day, to validate the model, to make sure the model is working, doing the right job, you have to have the, the toe to validate it against. And it would be very straightforward to go and you know, go and do that. Put a, just simply put a line around an iceberg, move it, and see how you know it survives. It's surprising I mean, the iceberg towing is. It's been a, it's sort of coming full circle now, but as we've you know, there's been a long history about it. There's been um, lots of things written about it. There's been lots of you know, cool pictures in magazines of you know, photoshopped icebergs off offshore of you know, tropical beaches and things. But there is just sort of at the end of the day, a lot of sort of the basic ideas of performing the tow is still very poorly known. What is the best way to tow an iceberg? Um, you know, is it just a line? I mean, the Canadians routinely tow icebergs off of Newfoundland to um, to stop them crashing into oil rigs, for example. But they're only towing them for maybe a couple of days at the most, right? So, what does you know what does that look like when you try and tow an iceberg for months on end? What does the iceberg look like that you want to pick? Is another thing. Um, what, you know, what shape is it? I mean, perhaps something that's you don't want something that's totally square because it would be really slow and hard to tow maybe something that's more kind of like long kind of rectangular for example would be good you know what how do you select the iceberg what does this iceberg look like you don't want an iceberg that's been drifting in the ocean for years and years and years because what they, they become what um become what they call rotten ice after a while where the you know the salt gets into the ice right and then you end up with this kind of very brittle material just essentially was sort of crumble if you try to move it so once it's nice and sort of new um you know what's the best place to go and find this iceberg and then as you know as you perform this tow you need to do it in a scientific way so you know you would need that's you would want to monitor how this iceberg is deteriorating for example it'd be cool to use say underwater robots to image the iceberg, perhaps every day or every half a day or something, to see how the shape's changing, and from there you can work out, you know, how much mass loss you were getting from the iceberg, how how fast it was melting, and if you don't know, perform that over the entire tow, you would get an idea about how quickly the iceberg is deteriorating. You could estimate, uh, you could have sensors on these little robots, for example, where you could change, you know, detect any changes in water temperatures that may affect, you know, the ecology. For example, sort of the whole the whole sort of iceberg towing package is it it just at this stage it really just needs some basic long tows being performed to sort of validate and to test you know the viability of doing it. It's quite funny because it's a topic we've been discussing in totally different areas of the water world uh, on that microphone. You know of how you model a treatment plant, but at some point once your model is very detailed, you need to have an actual real plan to just calibrate your, 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 your model and to then fine-tune it and refine it and come to the final shape where you have a model which is a digital twin. So I feel like if I get you right, then that's the next step for you, which is someone actually doing that iceberg that you can study it and then calibrate your model and then finally probably optimize the way it's done. So I, I think it's going to be something really, really, really fascinating to follow. But on the other end, I could also put exactly as much chances that in 50 years from now, another podcaster is making another interview with another scientist and saying, hey, that is really a hot topic. Because when I was reading what John Isaacs was writing, I think it's, he's, he passed in, in 1980. But when I read what he was writing, it was really was expecting that in the next 10 to 20 years, that was going to become mainstream. So future will tell. That was a fascinating deep dive. I propose you to switch to the rapid fire questions. Yeah, let's do the rapid fire questions. Sounds good. It's time for the rapid fire questions. So in that last section, I'm asking short questions. I'm trying to be less vocal than I was so far. I was really talking a lot today. Sorry for that. But it's a really fascinating topic to me. And if you can keep the answer short, uh, then we are within the topic of the rapid fire questions. First one, what is the most exciting project you've been working on? And why? <laughs> yeah, it's not a good question. I mean, 
I think the I mean the iceberg towing is is certainly a, a fascinating topic. You know, I should point out it's not really my it's not my, my, always my my main topic. I mean, we do a lot of Antarctic climate research in general, and that's sort of the main one of my main focuses: sea level, future sea level rise, and future climate change. What's your favorite part of your current job? That's probably uh, the flexibility of the job, actually, and the ability to, to some extent anyway, to be able to choose, you know, what you work on, right? So uh, the, the iceberg topic is probably a, a good example of something that um, would be hard to work on if it wasn't at Woods Hole. What is the trend to watch out for in the water industry? That's a good question. Um, I mean, I don't really have a solid answer for that. I mean... You've discussed uh, various other ways to extract you know, water from things like, you know, almost like dehumidifiers, for example. As, as time goes on, I think the demand, the need and the demand will change our ways of looking at what, what, are, what are we consider now to be viable water sources. What is the thing you care about the most when you're working on a new project? And what is the one you care the least? For a, yeah, for a new project, I think, uh, well, in all my projects, actually, I mean, the scientific accuracy of the work I'm doing making sure that, uh, you know, the results are correct. But also uh, doing science is sort of society relevant to uh, things that, you know, feel can impact society as a whole. And what is the one you care the least? I don't think there is a, uh, something I care the least about. Do you have sources to recommend to keep up with the water and wastewater market trends? <laughs> Unfortunately, I do not have a good answer for that question. <laughs> And final question, would you have someone to recommend me that I should definitely invite on that same microphone? I mean, perhaps giving our discussion about uh, Nick Sloan, I think he would be a, a perfect candidate. It'd be nice to, to hear where he's at with his, his towing project. Perfect. That sounds like uh, the perfect follow-up to our discussion today. Well, Alan, it was a pleasure to meet you, to dive into that world, which I didn't know at all before starting. And... Um, I'm glad that you mentioned this uh, scientific accuracy being something important to you because that sounds reassuring to me because, I mean, when you just hear that as a fantasy, it can sound like really a fantasy, but it sounds at the second pass to be much more tangible than this raised eyebrow I had at the very beginning. So thanks a lot. And I'd be very happy to have you again to prove your model right or wrong once the, the first tow actually happened. Yeah, it was, it was a pleasure. Thank you very much. I'm very happy to come back and chat more as well with an update of what we've been up to. Thank you. Thanks for listening to Don't Waste Water. This podcast was brought to you by GF Piping Systems. Loved this episode? Head over to Apple Podcasts to subscribe, rate, and leave a review. See you next time.